Hello and welcome to One Inch Press Scary Podcast. This is Kirsty Sayer and um, yeah, welcome back to the podcast and welcoming myself back more than anybody else because it has been a while. I've also enlisted the troops um, on one of my social media platforms to hold me accountable for actually publishing this one. I have a horrifying number of unpublished um, podcasts in my drafts folder, and I wanted to address that today. Um, maybe not that specifically, but that trend. Um, I've talked a lot about the ADHD brain and how we are just so, so good at self-sabotage. And I don't necessarily think that the ADHD brain in a vacuum is anything but marvelous. I am one of those believers. I firmly believe that we have such great brains and so many incredible advantages and that all of the downsides of ADHD come from the shame. And um, that's what I want to explore today. I want to talk about how shame has really been the most toxic thing for me when it comes to ADHD and not being able to fully realize and actualize myself. And I'm starting to acknowledge, and I want to shout out for anybody in the past, anybody in my past and present, and you can call me on this when I'm having one of my spirals, which will probably happen later today. Like you can refer to this. I'll probably be mad about it. I'll probably say, shut the fuck up. You don't know what you're talking about. I didn't know what the, what I was talking about and all that stuff. This is what happens. This is how I am, but I'm going to give you this. I'm going to let you have this now and thank you for it at the same time is that you've always said like, you have a great brain and you can do anything. You are, t- you are so much smarter than you give yourself credit for. You're so much more creative than you give yourself credit for. You're so much more capable than you give yourself credit for. And you just need to get out of your own way. And I'm going to say, you guys were so right. And you know what else? The same is true for pretty much everybody with ADHD. And I'm going to say something right now, which sounds really arrogant and I don't care. I think that we have some of the most top tier brains and there are specialists and doctors who will go on record who you should believe way sooner than you believe me on this. And I've mentioned it in the past, but I'm going to stand by this, right? And it's not me just being manic and self-congratulatory because we're going to get to the, the, the other side of this coin in a moment. I think that we have top tier brains. We are far more likely to be of higher intelligence. We think out of the box extremely efficiently and effectively. We're incredibly good in emergencies, which shows a certain type of very utilitarian intelligence, i.e. the kind of intelligence that saves lives and is very, very useful to people. We have it. Most of us with ADHD are fit the bill of people who are very good in emergencies, who are highly creative, can easily think out of the box, and who are often many, many, many steps ahead of everybody else in their room, if they're neurotypical, when it comes to solving an unsolvable seeming problem. However, we are extremely prone to shame. And I don't think that's because of our wiring. I think that's because of society. And I think that's because of why the way society is set up. And this is not like, whoa, an earth shattering, you know, revelation. This has been covered 
to death. But it is something that I think most of us don't fully take on board for ourselves. And so we live with this very painful experience of knowing that we have brains that are very quick and very good at so many things and having so many great ideas and skills and gifts and ability to share them and help people that rarely see the light of day because we live in a box of shame. And um, that is, of course, leading to things like hypoarousal, which is a fancy way of saying it drains us of the will to live, create, or, you know, tap into those gifts. When shame comes along, your whole system tends to shut down. It tends to just get really sluggish and you don't want to do anything. You don't want to be brilliant. You don't want to share your ideas. You don't want to solve any problems. You don't want to do anything. You want to tell yourself that you're a piece of crap and you may as well not try. And then you want to numb and you want to scroll social media, mindlessly watch TV, maybe eat a lot of carbs. And somehow people have started to equate that whole bit with, oh, this is the ADHD brain. It wants to just lie around, do nothing. It's lazy. It's unmotivated. It likes carbs. It's really immature. And it's like a little kid. Um, It can only work in short bursts of time. And it's, it's not that helpful. Like, it's kind of a dud. And that's bullshit. (laughs) Okay, that is because we shame ourselves because society has first shamed us. And it's also created circumstances for us to not fit into very comfortably in the form of deadlines and um, meetings at 8am and aesthetically um, celebrated homes, which have zero clutter and are all white with clean surfaces, all right? It's told us you suck at all those things. You suck at getting to places on time. You are literally traumatized by early mornings and your house looks like a, like, acid trip most of the time. So you suck. You are basically bad and useless. It didn't come out and say that to us, but we ourselves being so smart... (laughs) (laughs) made observations and came to that conclusion. A lot of us. And then what happens? Our bodies have a physiological response, which all bodies do, by the way, to being told that they suck and it goes and dials down and gets hella tired and unmotivated. And we're just like, this is my lot in life. And this is sad. Okay, so let's, uh, let's make that applicable to how this works for me, first of all, for this podcast. So here's what comes. I have a very, um, my core value is, listen, I want to take shitty things or hard things that have happened to me. I want to figure out how they don't have to happen to other people or for solutions that I've like come by really, really slowly or late in the game. And I want to give those things to other people in a way that they can understand and apply before they have to go through all the things that I had to go through to get them. That seems really noble and nice, right? And what's more, I also have the skill to do that. I am gifted and my my family would disagree. They don't think it's a gift. They think it's a curse specifically for them. Um, 
but I've been given the gift of the gap so that I can articulate pretty much anything that happens. And I will. I'm literally compelled to. My ADHD brain compels me to talk about every feeling that I've ever had in great detail, whether people want to hear it or not. And, you know, that is a kind of a drag for my family, but it is helpful to people who might dial into a podcast where I'm talking about something that affects them. So here's, again, let's recap. So I'll have this great idea in the bath and I'll be like, brilliant. I have figured out a way to articulate this particular problem, make it accessible, the solutions accessible to others. I will find miraculously enough a space um, in my day, uh, the time and the opportunity to talk quietly and uninterrupted, uh, like loud, but in a quiet space, uninterrupted into my phone for a good chunk of time. And then what will happen? Some little tiny mistake will happen. And I'll be like, but wait, I've got to be perfect to prove that I am worthy. Because in so many other ways, I don't show up as worthy. I can't get to places in time. And I can't meet deadlines the way other people do. And I mess up like generic boring forms quite a bit because they don't really make sense and they don't actually fit for the task and so I change them and that pisses other people up pisses other people off and then they then I feel shame and I have got to when I do bring my gift to the table it's got to be freaking perfect and flawless and that podcast right back there wasn't it was mostly good and there were like two or three probably really valuable nuggets in there but there was a lot of like redundancy and maybe I just did talk too much the way my kids constantly tell me I do and it's just going to make people turn off so I, I can't really, that's not the one. I'll get back to it. That's what happens and that is why I've probably got 50 really helpful podcasts in various stages of um, completion, mostly complete, to be honest, in my drafts folder. And I have hundreds more that I just deleted. And that is a really, really good microcosm for looking into everything else I've done in my life or wanted to do. Because I've got lots of things that I want to do, lots of ways that I want to share things in accessible, fun, understandable ways for other people to help them and noble and good thing, which is also personally self-serving because it makes me feel good about myself when I get to do that, and which is in turn healing. And frankly, nothing wrong with something being self-serving, everything right, because I am a good and valuable person who also deserves to feel good when I use my gifts. So it's a huge win-win, but this is how shame is impacting me. Not ADHD, not ADHD, you guys, but shame. Because what happens after that? After I decide to delete whatever I've done, after pouring in a lot of energy and creative genius into that thing, I'm just going to throw that word in there. You can decide whether or not you think it's genius, but maybe I think it was a little bit genius into that thing. And then I decided it was unworthy. Here comes that shame train and it freaking takes me out. And then I don't want to do anything. Not my homework, not my life, not my laundry, nothing. And I'm just going to lie there. And that all gets bundled into, oh my God, ADHD, it's such a nightmare. It's not a nightmare if society doesn't have that impact in telling us we're unworthy. We're just different. And yes, it is pretty complicated to figure out a way to be successful in a society that is very much built for the neurotypical brain. But we are 
infinitely more likely to reach success when we shun the shame part of it because we do also have extra mental energy. Um, that hyperactivity part that so many people think has to do with moving our legs and arms a lot, more likely, particularly, particularly in the case of women, it is being utilized by our brains. We have enormous amounts of mental energy. And if we can free up shame, we have even more so. Because here's how that goes for me. I have um, deadlines. It's grad school. It's something I don't like, right? Because most people are just not crazy for deadlines. Some people love them. Some people thrive on them. Neurotypicals will often feel safer. They'll push for deadlines. They'll love a deadline. They'll, they're the ones that create deadlines, right? And honestly, so many things are really, really, you know, the world runs by deadlines and we're grateful for them, right? We, we are grateful that there are deadlines for things like planes taking off and, you know, doctors eventually seeing us at some point during a day. They tend to take a looser look at a deadline, but there is still some semblance of deadlines. They, they must needs be. I'm not ever going to bash a neurotypical because they cannot help the way their brain works any more than I can help the way my awesome ADHD brain works. However, deadlines are harder for us. The hard and firm deadline is a tough thing to negotiate, and we don't always get it right. But we, um, you know, we somehow generally find a way most of us, um, to get by. And it's tiring, but we do it. So here's me in grad school recognizing I have a lot of deadlines. My creative part is going hell to the now um, on the number of deadlines that I have. But eventually it accepts it. It accepts, you know, this is a necessary evil. What it doesn't do is accept that deadlines can actually be like broken down and intelligently spread throughout the week. It knows that. It just won't believe it for me. <laughs> so it goes, you know what, that's good for others, but it's not good for me. What you're going to do is you're going to take all 10 of your deadlines for all of your classes that are due about the same time on a Monday afternoon. And what you're going to do is get to that on a Sunday evening. Okay, that's that's you. That's you. So chill. Don't worry too much about it for the rest of the week, because that deadline doesn't apply to you until sometime on a Sunday evening when something very, very special that wakes up the ADHD brain to fulfilling a deadline is going to come online. And that is called urgency. And the ADHD brain relies on urgency. It is its currency. It is its life's blood. There are two other things that it lives for. This is novelty and interest. And at some point in grad school, you're going to get all burned out of novelty and interest will come and go. Okay, it's going to wax and wane. And there are going to be a lot of weeks where all you've got on your side is urgency. And that is all you got. And it's a powerful agent. And it can tip the scales very much in your favor if you don't need things like eating and sleeping. And that's where things get pretty rough for me. So I was noting that I was really relying very much on urgency. Urgency would come into play around 8, 9, 10. Recently, it was 11 o'clock at night. Um, 
for a deadline of maybe 9 a.m. the next day. And I pulled an all-nighter. Now, what was different from this all-nighter from all the others that I've had throughout my life, because there have been many and there will yet in the future be many, yes, there will, is that I'd had a chat with my therapist earlier, um, a few weeks ago, where she looked at my hellscape of a life in grad school as a recent graduate student herself and said to me, listen, what I think every grad student should accept is that it's not going to be a good time, but you're, you are going to get through it. You chose it and you're going to get through it. And you don't have to add the extra burden of expecting to love it or expecting that it's going to be healthy or functional. It's just going to be completed in the end. You are going to get through it. So here's a little plug for therapy. A lot of very smart people, i.e. ADHD people, think, I know there are other people who are not who are smart, who are not ADHD, but I'm going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to like shout out to my peeps right now. Smart ADHD people often will resist therapy because they are so smart and they have had most of the ideas that any therapist they ever saw came up with and gave them already without even cracking a psychology book. They already knew that shit, a lot of them. Okay. And they're like, this isn't worth the time or the money. And I fully trust me. I fully acknowledge that. I respect that. I understand it. I get it. Trust me. However, what a therapist can do for you is give you permission. And because you paid for that permission, you will actually utilize that in your life. It will give you that extra amount of validity to take that and be like, my therapist said that I could um, have a bad time in grad school if I wanted and there's nothing wrong with me. So that's what I'm going to do. You already had that idea. You already knew that long ago, but your therapist giving you that, like somebody you, ex- you respect and know is smart and also went to grad school, <laughs> giving you that permission will allow you to take it. Trust me. That's my plug to those of you listening to this who are very, very smart, smarter than any therapist you'll ever see, blah, blah, blah. I get it. Go to therapy because they're going to have ideas that you also have, then they're going to validate them and they're going to give you permission to live by them. That's my plug. Okay. So here's what um, else she and I came to. Um, Honestly, my brilliant idea, but she gave me permission. Okay. Um, Was this. You get to use urgency. It's what you've got. Urgency is your is your boo. Accept it as your boo and not just as that thing that keeps you in this incredibly toxic all-nighter loop. It is your boo. It's what you got. You're going to use your boo. You're going to welcome urgency when she comes and you're going to work through it. And here's what that did for me in this most recent all-nighter, which might I say actually wasn't that negative of an experience and worked out well and was fine and non-traumatic. Here's what happened with that. I was doing that all-nighter without delegating 25% of my brain that I usually do to beating myself up for the fact that I was having an all-nighter experience because that's how that usually goes. I go, okay, great. Brain, we're calling a meeting. Here's what's going on. You've got five homework assignments, right? Um, And they're tough. And there's you know, only so much of your brain to go around. So I'm going to allocate you 
you're on that one, you're, you're on that one, you, that quarter of the brain that's left, oh, sorry, we were down to three, you, you're on this um, and that, and you, that quarter over there that's left twiddling your fingers with so much energy, I'm going to give you the most important assignment, and that is to beat up Kirsty for the fact that she's in this fucked up situation, and this is very immature, and this is very just stupid and undisciplined of her and she's done done it again please be sure to remind her of that like maybe every 90 seconds if not more often thank you take that responsibility incredibly faster and that quarter of my brain is saying hey i thought that maybe we could take a crack at that statistics shit that she never really wanted to do and she really struggles at it it seems like a third quadrant of brain is is going to be struggling doing it all on her own there she really she needs us boss and I, and I was like fuck that she needs to be shaming Kirsty so that maybe Kirsty won't do this shit again and and that corner and she's like okay but she's been shaming Kirsty that you know like Kirsty's been shaming herself this entire time and it's never going to end it's not it's not working out it never tends to have a good outcome like she just spirals the next day and she's exhausted and sad and and it's just it's not good boss and 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 boss is saying no 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 keep the shaming going and suddenly me and my therapist came to the the like conclusion let's take the shaming out of the equation and sure, we've got an incredible amount of work in a short amount of time that needs to be done. But this brilliant brain can actually fucking hack it. It can do it. It's got urgency on its side. And it's shown time and time again that even with shaming, it can do it. So what What might happen if we take out shaming? What might she be able to do? Well, she performed um, academically about on par as usual. But what was really incredible credible was the aftermath there wasn't an emotional spiral she didn't have to like come back from a 12-hour stint of telling herself how much she sucked which wastes a lot of bandwidth right because that makes you super super tired right when shame comes online what comes online the hypo arousal, which makes you really tired and unmotivated and scrolling, doom scrolling, mindless eating, other sabotaging shit. That never happened. She just like put her head down and enjoyed the work. Okay, maybe not all of it, but like had a lot more freedom, had a lot more energy to get stuff done. And there was no aftermath. So you might think, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong, Kirsty. I got shame on board because shame cracks the whip. You're wrong, my friends. It's not shame that's cracking the whip. It's fucking urgency that's crack- cracking the whip. Urgency is always going to be there for you. Urgency is part of life because we got other neurotypicals out there giving us deadlines for the rest of this life. If we ever get around to writing that book, we're going to have a publisher. We're going to have an agent who is cracking that whip. We are always going to have urgency. It's fine. You can be nice to yourself. I promise you, you can do away with shame. You are not going to find that you just become a husk of a human. You're mistaking that husk of a human shit that happens with acceptance. It's not. It's shame that's actually leading to the husk of a human stuff. I do promise you that. 
urgency will come around when you need it. I promise. When it comes time for you to actually get shit done, you will always get shit done. And it will find its way. And hopefully it will mostly be because of interest. Because interest is the most fun way to get things done. Urgency is not always a good time. Novelty is great. Novelty is adorable. We love novelty. She's our friend. and f- But she's really, really fickle. And it often, you know, she's not around. She's a good time girl. <laughs> she burns out really easily. We can't depend on novelty and interest is in and out. She waxes and wanes. If you have chosen a career or an educational path that is really right for you, interest is going to be a fairly loyal friend. But again, she's in and out. Urgency, you're always going to have her when the moment counts. So if you're not feeling inspired to do things right now, maybe you don't actually need to do them. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe you don't really need to do them. Maybe there's somebody else's agenda. Have you ever thought about that? You don't actually have to shame yourself into anything. Here's the mistake that we're all making. We're thinking the fact that we ever succeeded at anything had to do with the fact that there was shame cracking its whip. Shame does none of that. Shame is just an exhausting agent. Shame is demoralizing. It is it saps your energy. It has a physiological deadening effect, which does nothing for anyone urgency is the one that you got to give the props to. And we tend to wrap urgency and shame in the same little blanket and call them the same thing, but they're entirely different. So when I was doing the assignment um, and I decided to do away with shame and tell shame that it could take the night off, I was able to use that bandwidth to do other things like text my daughter who was up at the same time and enjoy that um, and needed, you know, some companionship. She was uh, on a road trip um, with friends and she sometimes gets nervous and I could check in with her and, you know, make sure she was fine. And that was nice. That was good for our relationship. And you know what else I get to do when I'm up at all night because I have to rely on urgency to come online? Um, I get to see my son who has the 4 a.m. gene there's, there's an actual thing, the 4 a.m. gene. And he gets up at 4 a.m. and he has a bowl of cereal and has every night of his life, pretty much. Um, and we didn't love it when he was a baby and he required us to get up with him or a toddler. But now it's great. It's so fun to see him in the middle of the night. We were like, you know, water cooler buddies. He's like, ah, mom, I see you're back at the grind. And I'm like, ah, son, I see you're back at the cereal. And we have a nice convivial little moment and I cherish them. And I got to really just enjoy that and not actually go, oh my gosh, my son's going to see me at 4am and be like, mom, fucking manage your time better. He's never thought that. He doesn't think that much about me. He just thinks, oh, mom's at the grind at 4am. Good for her. And then he goes and gets his cereal. Um, The shame was all me. And the shame is actually exhausting and demotivating. And the fact that I got anything done in the past was actually a damn miracle because I was using so much energy shaming myself where I could have really, really freed up that bandwidth to actually do the job at hand. And where that bandwidth was really, really seen was the next day when, yeah, sure, I was tired, but I could engage with my family. I could enjoy my day to some degree. I could relax and and watch a show. I wasn't my best. It wasn't optimal. Do I wish that I could figure out a happy medium between these things? 
Yes. Would I like to cut down on the number of all-nighters that I seem to be doing lately? Yes. Will it happen? Maybe. It's far more likely to happen now that I've, like, freed up all this energy to work on that particular conundrum by not shaming myself as much. Do you see how that works? Okay, I'm back. Um, in this half, I wanted to talk to you about... Um, something called pathological demand avoidance. If you have not heard of that before, it's a fairly recent discovery for me, at least in reference to knowing everything there was to know about ADHD. It's one of the more recent discoveries. Um, and it's something that I've discovered or have looked into more lately just because it's coming up more lately because I have that much more demand in my life, um, particularly demands... Um, which displeased me. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I found that that has been triggering and it feels very real. Um, it's not something, you know, oh, it's very different. And you'll know when you're experiencing it from, oh, what a drag. I really don't want to do this thing, but I guess I need to do it and buckle down and do it. It's like an absolute wall. It feels physiological. Every part of your body resists and rejects even the idea of doing a thing um feels not quite the same as rebellion all i can say is how it feels for me is just this like <sighs> i physically shrink from it i shrink from even the idea of it and everything feels blocked i feel very incapable i just feel fully unwilling to even entertain the idea of doing a thing and when that happens when you know you have to do a thing it can be really scary and what's interesting is that pathological demand avoidance is often associated um, with anxiety and might even itself be just a manifestation of anxiety now i am by no means an expert i have I am only an expert on myself and I'm describing to you how I feel and how I'm working on moving around this. Um, I would highly recommend that if this sounds even a little bit true for you or for somebody you know, that you do some reading um, because there are people who know a lot more about it um, than I do and it is very often associated with ADHD and it's something you know when when that happens we are so much better off with information and that happens to be one of the first things you can do um, to combat PDA it's um, it's very helpful to be able to tell yourself okay what you're experiencing now is not a character floor it is not you know a weird a sort of mental block because that was what I would always describe it as before I'd say I have this weird mental block and I don't know what to do and then I become more and more anxious about why this weird mental block came along what it was rooted in trying to figure it out all sort of psychologically understand if it was triggered in anything and it was coming up short because not everything is about that sometimes it's just a thing that is associated with itself in that it's this never-ending loop. The more anxiety you add to the fact that you don't want to do something, the more it doubles down. Have you ever seen this with your kids? Um, maybe you have a kid who experiences this when it comes to homework and then you're like yelling at them, just do your homework, get it over with. Nothing but doing it will make you feel better or you've got to do it and they are just spiraling more and more and they just can't do it or won't do it. And it's so frustrating. 
Um, it's significantly frustrating when it's happening inside your mind and your mind is doing its own little tantrum, um, which is just basically telling a very telling sign that you're experiencing anxiety. So this is why it's so helpful to know what's going on, because you can tell yourself in your rational adult voice, okay, so you're experiencing demand avoidance for some reason right now, and that's okay. You can give yourself some space and um, just calm yourself down and let's engage in some anxiety relieving exercises or activities. And that can be something like, you know, breath work or going for a walk out in nature or just stepping out into nature and breathing fresh air, doing some somatic movements like shaking your arms um, or doing something called tapping, which my therapist, which I've known about for a really long time, but my therapist actually incorporated into one of our recent um, sessions, which was actually truly helpful and very grounding. Um, there are a number of ways in which you can then say, let's address the root of this issue. Um, you don't necessarily always have the time, inclination, or there may not be a psychological deep trauma associated with your resistance to something. It doesn't always have to be. It can just be that you, some, some kind of anxiety was provoked by the idea of doing this task and now it's all escalated into complete demand avoidance it's does feel very different and for me it feels different from a trigger it feels like this physiological shrinking away from uh, from a task and I just cannot fathom doing it and you know what when you have that many deadlines like you do in grad school with them coming at you all the time it can be scary and like I say then that exacerbates the problem so what I've done with that experience recently is say, okay, then just give yourself some time. You, you know you have this responsibility. I trust that in time you're going to find a way to work around it in a way that feels less confronting, that feels less threatening to you, that feels less offensive to you. This will often also come up when it's something that I don't feel like I should have to do. So I recently started a class that kind of blindsided me for a number of reasons, but it doesn't play to my strengths and it's not something that I ever imagined I would have to deal with um, in this particular degree. And for that reason, I felt confronted by it in and just like this isn't fair that that this isn't fair feeling came up and like this is stupid and I don't like it. And neuroatypical people, if they can't see a solid reason for doing something, if it doesn't make sense to them, they don't want to do it. They have strong resistance to that, which can be a really great trait. Um, we're far less easily brainwashed. We're far less easily manipulated. We're far less likely to follow the crowd in doing bad, negative things. But at the same time, there are some things that we do have to do, whether or not they make sense um, to us personally, um, to achieve a bigger goal. And for me, this was this, like, do you want to get your degree? Do you want this all to be for naught? Do you want this to be a sunk cost? Because I honestly felt like all of those things might, like my actual degree might be in jeopardy because I had to do this class that didn't make sense to me and that I physically felt a rejection to. And I was like, am I going to lose all of what I've invested financially, time, emotionally? Am I going to say goodbye to my dream and everything because I'm having this particular demand avoidance, this class, or am I going to find a way? 
And it really required me to give myself the type of space that I have learned a counselor needs to do, a therapist needs to do for somebody to choose to do something. The more pressure we put on somebody to do something that they do not want to do, even if we know it's the right thing for them, the more they will push back, almost always. That is just a bad idea. So I had to therapize myself and say, look, this is really inconvenient timing, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you to do the right thing in the end. This didn't happen immediately. Immediately I had tantrums. I freaked out. I cried for like two straight days over my homework. I flailed around like an animal in a trap looking for any way out. And I found the way out for me was to understand why I did need this and for, to persuade myself and nobody else could do it at this point. I had to do it. I had to find the utility and value in this because things that don't make sense to me, I want no part of, right? I hate them. <laughs> and I certainly don't want to invest a lot of time and effort into them, which is what is required of grad school classes. So I had to recognize that there had to be some utility. I had to first go with, I have already, I can't go out because I'm not going to get a refund for this class. And I cannot, if I redo this class, I will, it will cost me so much money to now take a class that I don't believe in twice. So in for a penny, in for a pound, freaking finish the thing. That was number one reason. Still a lot of resistance to that, but it allowed me to push forward. Then I decided I'm going to talk to the professor. I'm going to have a conversation with him. I'm going to be candid and vulnerable about my resistance. At that point, I was able to find a really valid reason, not just one, but several that were rooted in actual trauma. And I got his buy-in. I got him recognizing that I was having a really hard time. And he became my cheerleader, not my tormentor. Not a guy who was giving me tasks that I didn't believe in, that felt stupid and and punishing and too hard. He was somebody who was on my side. And then I stopped seeing him as the enemy and the tasks themselves as the enemy. Um, and rather as the supportive hu you know, human that he is, a kind, invested party. Third, I started to look at ways that this would actually be useful to me. And fourth, and I found them. I found them. You know, the course doesn't exist because it is of no utility to anyone. There is a reason for it. Maybe I don't value the reason as much as others do, but there are still valuable reasons. And I realized that the more investment that I put in it, the more I might be able to use in it, it later. And that helped me to get out of it. And lastly, I decided to gamify it. So when I started, I was like, okay, let me figure out how very, how to just get through it, how to just parse it, how very little work I could do and still parse it. And that became the game. Then I had limited success and I was like, let me see how well I can do in this. And that's the game. It can be whatever you like. Just call it a game and it becomes a game, frankly. If you buy into it, it does become a game. And then that awoke competitiveness. I forgot to mention our friend competitiveness, uh, another massive motivator for um, an ADHD brain. Being competitive, but w against ourselves. 
I um, am in no way motivated by competition against somebody else. I find that a demotivator, in fact. Um, it just really creates insecurities and other shit that I don't have any interest in experiencing. But I am highly, highly motivated by comp competition with myself. And so I'm like, okay, so initial response Kirsty had to this class was this is shit and I can only... Um, dream of just pressing it new Kirsty is like i see you early Kirsty. i'm going to raise you doing really unexpectedly well in this thing and then it became a game became a competition and here we are so those are some ways i personally as an expert on myself have found to overcome the issue of pathological demand avoidance there are a number of games that adhd people play with themselves um, sometimes the only thing I can get to do is to imagine that I'm somebody else. If a task is really repugnant to me, I imagine somebody who it may not be repugnant to. I imagine a TV character. Um, and I literally will, the game will be putting myself into the role of that TV character. So right now I'm watching, um, Suits. I'm obsessed with Suits. I love that show and I wish I hadn't discovered it in grad school because I want to watch it all the time. But I, so this is statistics and I'm thinking everybody fucking hates statistics, <laughs> but I could be Lewis Lit for a day. And if you haven't, <laughs> if you haven't watched Suits, you won't understand why I'm laughing about this because Lewis is hilariously He's just hilarious to me. He is just such a funny, nuanced character, and I adore him. Um, he's also very punchable sometimes. But I'm just like, okay, B. Lewis Lit. He loves statistics. He loves numbers. He loves weird shit that other people hate. And so I'm going to Lewis Lit this stuff. I'm going to lit this up. Dumb example, but this is how I do stuff. Sometimes I am Wonder Woman. And I wonder woman my way through things. I really picture her walking through that battlefield. I've probably talked about this a number of times before with my tasks or my challenges or my fears coming at me like those bullets and I am resisting them with my little power cuffs. Whatever it is, man, do it. Gamify it. Gamifying for ADHD brains is like unlocking a whole, a whole new level, but it is unlocking a huge huge amount of capacity and buy-in for you you will get so much more cooperation out of your brain by making things fun because what you're doing then is introducing a little girlfriend novelty into something that is typically not looked upon as fun um so when you think about um mary poppins and how she did that cleaning up the room um, action by clicking her fingers. Don't we all just oh, wish we could be Mary Poppins? I fantasize about that scene all the time. Um, but she sang the song, uh, and it was, and I repeat it to myself all the time, in every job there is to be done, there is an element of fun. We find the fun and snap, the job's a game, right? And that is true of the ADHD brain. You find the fun and snap, the task's a game. Do it. Find the fun. And guess what? Because you have your creative ADHD brain, you will never run out of ways to manipulate something into a game. Um, to find utility in something that, that seems like a burden. If you want to. If you've decided to hack it. 
Um, hacks are where we absolutely thrive. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about was reframing perceived failure. And so this is actually something that I've think, thought about quite a bit as my, my program has progressed. Um, at the beginning of the program, I spent a lot of time mourning how I could have been doing this all along and how I have always had the capacity and why did I waste so much time? I should have been in this in this field like everybody else told me 20 years ago and I could have been so much better off and I could have been um, healing myself in a way that only being so immersed in something like this and learning to help other people can. I mean, I found this to be an incredibly emotionally corrective experience in its own. Never mind that it's often extremely hard. It makes me cry. But there are lots of ways in being in a program like this is very healing. And I'm just like, why didn't I discover it or have the encouragement or have the self-belief or whatever to do it 20 years ago or, you know, 10 years ago even. And that has really plagued me. And again, when that comes in, you get this defeating cloud coming over you, this sense of shame. The physiological uh, hypoarousal begins when you just regret. Regret is all tied up into those emotions. Shame and regret are all part of that hypoarousal package where you just power down. And reframing... Um, that became a really important thing for me to do. And I was preoccupied with it for several weeks, looking for ways to be happy that I didn't come to it a minute earlier. And every single time I'd have a tiny glimmer that showed me this is something that you couldn't have coped with, not just not 10 years or 20 years ago, but not even a month earlier than you did. You are in the right program at the right time. Um, became a mantra that I needed to find um, evidence for. And when you look what we look for, we find, right? So I think that is something that we need to do when it comes to failure. When we are looking for ways all the time to decide, okay, so I've this, I've you know spent a lifetime of thinking of myself up as a of thinking of myself as a perennial screw-up. Do you see how my mind works so much faster than my mouth? Um, but I am not a screw-up, and I'm going to start to look for evidence to show that that screw-up was, in fact, preparing me for where I am now. And I'm going to look for glimmers of life experiences and things that people say I'm going to look for them and I'm going to add them to the evidence that I'm compiling against that, that perception of myself as a screw up, that the time wasn't right for me to do whatever it was. And that has been a very powerful thing for me in addressing ADHD-based shame and the things that transpired because of it, um, the underachievement in my mind. Maybe it's not underachievement. Maybe it's, in fact, other thing achievement. Maybe it was that my kids really needed me to be a stay-at-home mom that wasn't distracted by grad school. Um, yes, I was distracted by other things, but not in the way, not in the immersive way that grad schools distracted me. 
maybe I just needed a chance to do nothing. I was still in significantly arrested development because of my childhood trauma, and I needed time and space in my life to not be a student, to just have the freedom to not do things or to be able to say things that I don't have the freedom to do and say now. So I am constantly looking for evidence for a better reframe that feels healthier and more supportive. And this is where, you know, putting your negative thoughts on the stand um, and your negative perceptions about yourself on the stand and building a case against them is really important for ADHDs to do because we have indeed created a lifetime of shame identities that we need to now kind of dismantle and we need to reframe and see as being who we needed to be at that time or doing what we needed to do at any given time. And I know this is kind of an abstract concept and this is um, perhaps a little meandering, a little more meandering than I would like it to be. But I really would like to encourage you to confront as a lawyer would, again, I'm in my suits phase, um, these negative thought patterns that come up where you perceive failure in yourself and start to build cases against them being just what they needed to be. And, you know, don't be unrealistic or delusional when you need to take accountability for things that you did really just wrong and you screwed up. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, where you hurt people and you need to apologize for that, take accountability, say sorry, and then do away with the shame as you build up um, skills so that you don't re-hurt people, that kind of thing. But where there is nothing to be done, there is no way to go back 20 years and, and enroll in, in this particular grad program. And I probably wouldn't have gotten into this particular grad program 20 years ago, frankly, um, where you have situations like this, which are really out of your control and there's nothing to be done. There's no utility in being shaming about them. Find ways to put those shame thoughts on the stand. Confront them and build a case against them because you're going to find that it gives you so much more confidence and confidence is really what we need. Confidence in our worthiness, confidence in the fact that people should see what we're doing with our lives, that we can put imperfect but good enough things out there for people to either accept or reject, to critique uh, positively or negatively, and that they do not have any impact on our worth as a person. These are all really important things for us to, you know, start doing as ADHDers who have experienced a lifetime of inordinate amounts of shame, both from society and then from ourselves. Um, and, you know, everything that we can do to confront and push back against shame let's start doing it. We deserve that. We've really, really experienced enough shame in our lives. And that's what I'm doing. And I've actually come to the point where I just can't afford not to. I cannot indulge in shame because it is too demotivating. It is too dis exhausting. It doesn't serve the clients that I see um, because they need to be able to mirror my confidence. They need to be able to mirror my self-acceptance and my self-love. And I'm recognizing that I just cannot afford it anymore. And I couldn't afford it back then either. I couldn't afford it when I was raising my children. And I see that now. 
And I would have been far better off confronting shameful thoughts and thinking I wasn't good enough then instead of thinking that those shameful thoughts were motivating me. They weren't. They were making me not a better mother. They were making me a worse mother. And my children didn't get the best of me because of that. So again, I just want to say, please, please, please don't waste any more time on um, thinking that shame is somehow helping you because it's not. There's no place for shame. There's place for definitely remediation. There's place for apologies. There's a place for accountability every single day. Um, certainly in my life, every single day, I can see ways in which I've messed up, in which I've um, not been able to see parts of myself that needed to be seen. And now I'm doing better. And when I don't do better, I apologize and I recommit. Um, and so that's where I am now. And I hope that you will be able to find something in here, if nothing else, entertain the idea that shame is not your friend and do what you can to um, inch away from that relationship that you have because a lot of us are in bed with an enemy um, and it's not doing us or the people that we love any, any favors. Um, I think if I could choose one quality or one <sighs> trait or one thing that has permeated my life um, and, you know, remove it from my life, it would most certainly be the shame that I felt um, that was never mine to feel. And when I can think of one thing that would have changed my trajectory of life, my energy levels, my ability to succeed, and most importantly, um, the health of my relationships and my capacity to be a good mother who didn't, you know, pass down the wounds of generational trauma. Again, shame. Shame did everything negative in my life and nothing positive. And so that is my work to do now, is to confront shame at every turn and to find evidence against it and get rid of it. Pluck it out bit by bit. I hope that this podcast has been in some way useful to you. I'm going to, uh, I was going to say submit it. <laughs> That's the grad school in me. I'm going to publish it. And if it is helpful to you or you think it will be helpful to somebody else, please feel free. And actually, um, I'm not going to say please feel free. I'm going to encourage you to do me the favor of sharing it because that's how... Um, you help my dream take hold, and I would really appreciate it. My dream is to help as many people as possible, and when you share it, like it, review it in a positive way, um, you help somebody else to to make their dream come true. And I'm really grateful to you who listen and tune in and offer me words of encouragement and accountability. I thank you so much. Um, none of us do anything that we do alone. We're all in this together, and if I can help make your dream come true, let me know. I love doing that. All right, take care and I'll see you when I see you. Bye.